welcome to E3. Uh, my name is Eric, and I'm, I'm one of the pastors here as well. And uh, we are three weeks into this four-week series we're calling The Grind, where we're looking through the Psalms, and we're looking through the things that wear on us in our lives. And, and before we get too far into it, I want to catch you guys up on, on what my week was like. Some of you guys may know this, uh, some of you may not, but I spent... Um, Three and a half days, I guess, really, uh, up at a monastery this week outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, it's a place that I've been going to now for a couple years. And I went up Monday afternoon and uh, showed up there. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a monastery that's run by uh, the Catholic Church. And they're legit monks there. They got the robes. They got hoods. It's awesome. And I go up there just to kind of clear my head and to uh, lay myself out before God and, and see what he might challenge me to do. So this week, I, I heard some things. I heard some things about myself, heard some things about you. Um, I'll tell you what that looks like later. This is a, just a picture of the, that's the church. I think we have a couple other pictures of just what it looks like. That's a, just a cool picture of the church doors, because why not? And, um, and then this is always one of my favorite pictures. Uh, this is, uh, that's the monk's graveyard. And that's visible from the retreat house. And, and you know, sometimes in our, in our 21st century world, we, we think of that as morbid, but I actually think of that as, as, a, as a reality check. You know, the mortality rate is still hovering right around 100%. And, um, and sometimes I need, to, I need to realize that I need to live my life a little bit more uh, in that reality. You know, I only have a certain set number of days here on this earth, and I need to make sure that I'm uh, trying to live them out in, in, a, in a way that is honoring to God and is honoring to my family and friends. Uh, so we're going to talk today about the grind of, of insignificance. And before we, we get into the heart of that topic, I want to paint a picture for you guys. Um, a couple hundred years ago, May 7th, 1824, a group of people uh, in Vienna, Austria, collected themselves and they went to a concert hall. And they went there that night to see uh, one of the most acclaimed composers in, in that time and in that era and in, eventually in Western music. Um, he was presenting a new piece. His name was Ludwig von Beethoven. Anybody heard of Beethoven? So uh, this was a big deal. It was... Like I said, the unveiling of a new piece that he had just written. And they, they, they got settled in, and, uh, and they looked out, and they saw an, an, an orchestra, and they also saw a choir standing with them. And, and as they settled down, and as, as the concert hall quieted down, uh, this is what they hear, heard. And so just listen to this beginning. beginning of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Anybody ever heard that? 
familiar with it? Beethoven, uh, he assembled the largest orchestra he had ever assembled for, for a symphony. He added, he added members to this orchestra, and there was a choir there. And the Ninth Symphony is, uh, if, if you're not a fan of orchestral music, it is one of the considered probably Beethoven's finest symphony. It's also considered one of the finest orchestral works in all of Western music. And there's a legend even that this goes on and on and on, that the length uh, of a compact disc, anybody remember compact discs? The length of a compact disc is 74 minutes. Do you know why? The legend has it because Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is 74 minutes long. And so as the, the two major manufacturers, I think it was Philips and Sony, they were, they were developing the technology, and one of the parameters that they used is they said, well, whatever medium this looks like, whatever this eventually shapes up to be, it has to accommodate Beethoven's Ninth because it's the longest piece of music and considered, like I said, the finest piece of music. Now, uh, just so you know, Beethoven would be dead in just a few years after this. He dies in like 1827. And there's some other particulars about this that I'll get to in a little bit. But I want to set up the idea that Beethoven made his mark in history. I mean, if anybody did not have a problem with insignificance, it was Beethoven. We still, we know him. He's one of those one-name people like, you know, Jordan or... Kardashian, I don't know. You know, those people that have, have achieved that one name recognition in our culture. And it, and it started me thinking about what does it mean to be significant, you know, especially in light of, of Beethoven's achievements and some of our other achievements. And so I want to just unpack a little bit of this before we get to the text of Psalm 139. I'll start just this way with a simple definition. You know, what is significance? Significance is just that feeling of being worthy of attention. Significance is just that deep-seated knowledge that somehow we matter, right? And, and we, can, we can come at this from a few different, from a few different ways. Some of us uh, strive to matter because of the things we do, the things we say, the people we know. Um, but it matters to us whether we have that feeling. You know, I worked my first job at a church. Uh, the staff of that church was 430 people, okay? You know, E3 has a staff of like, I don't know, seven or eight or something of it, you know? Uh, my first church job, there were 430 people on staff. And when I did the thing that I did and played music and everything, I felt remarkably significant. But there were times when I realized, man, I'm one of 430 people. And the lead pastor of that church, not only did he really not know who I was, he didn't even wander through my department. I remember one time of, of three years, there was a sighting of the lead pastor in our department, in our wing of the church. And we were like, no, you know, we were making jokes. I think that we, we just felt the glory of God pass us by, you know, because it was such a rare occasion. And it was really, really tempting to just fall into this idea of like, man, why, do I matter? Do I matter here? And uh, this also made me think of one of my favorite bands, one of the favorite lyrics from one of my favorite bands of the 90s. Anybody remember Counting Crows? They were one of my favorite bands, and they wrote a song called Daylight Fading. And the, like the first line of the verse is, uh, Adam, um, 
Duritz writes this line. He says, I'm waiting for the telephone to tell me that I'm alive. Anybody ever been there? Where you're just kind of sitting by yourself and you're like, does anybody even know? You know? And if the telephone rings or if there's a knock on my door, you know, that'll tell me that I matter. But when I'm left alone with my thoughts and my existence, this nagging little doubt starts to fester. You know. But luckily for us, we have social media. Because social media remedies all of those things. You know, Andy Warhol back in the 60s said, in the future, everybody's going to be famous for how long? 15 minutes. And so we all get an opportunity to kind of play that out because now the, the playing field is level. And we engage in Facebook and we engage in Twitter and we engage in all of these things where we get to put ourselves out there and make our mark and tell everybody that we matter and get our, what I would call our significance fix, right? And I was, uh, I was researching this week and there are two chemicals in our body that really, really uh, social media wreaks havoc with and also manipulates. And the two chemicals are this, dopamine and oxytocin. Any medical people in, in the house know these two, these two chemicals? Uh, coincidentally, I gave a message a couple years back talking about sex. These two chemicals came up in that talk. These two chemicals... Uh, play very much into our addiction to social media, okay? So it plays itself out this way. Dopamine uh, is this chemical that gets released in our bodies when we go looking for things and we find them. It used to be more associated with the getting of something. It's a, it used to be associated with the pleasure center. Researchers now would say it's more associated with Seeking. So there's something in our wiring that loves to go looking for things like attention, like significance. And so we go out and we make our posts or we go out looking for a, a post that we like. And while we do that, dopamine starts getting released in our bodies and that makes us feel engaged and good. And in fact, scientists say, you know what's kind of, uh, what, what also triggers dopamine is anticipation. So after we make the post, or after we you know, repost something that we find, the anticipation of that first like triggers our body and we feel, oh, I'm feeling good about myself now. My mood is starting to elevate. Dopamine is also exacerbated by unpredictability. You can't predict when those likes are going to happen. But nevertheless, chemically, your body is reacting already. Oxytocin is called, uh, I heard it referred to this week as the cuddle chemical. Anybody guess why? Because when you cuddle, with that significant other, oxytocin gets released in your body. And again, 
Your mood elevates. You feel better about yourself. And so uh, researchers have done these tests where they have kind of set uh, people up with different social media experiences. One of the interesting things they found out about oxytocin is that when people start receiving likes for the things they post, the level of their mood, the level of oxytocin in their bodies goes up about 13%. You know what's interesting about that figure? Yesterday, I got the pleasure of, of uh, participating in a wedding with some good friends. The level of oxytocin that goes up on your wedding day, 13%. So, I think the grind of insignificance is a human reality. We all want to know that we matter. And we all kind of get haunted by maybe the, the idea that somehow we don't matter. And so, luckily, technology drops in our laps, quite literally, this little tool that lets us get our significant fix because we can always post and there's always something to find. And the chemicals of our very nature reinforce this. But the problem with this is I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but somebody once said, if you are using a product that is related to the internet and it does not cost anything, guess what? You're the product. We engage with all these things like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and it's all free. It's free. Or, but is it? Because who's winning in this war? Facebook is the amount of data that we get collected. So we use these things and, and, and our body gets the fix for significance, but make no mistake about it. You're a product to Facebook and you're a product to Google and you're a product to Instagram. You're the thing that they're banking on. And all, this, all the while you're feeding that fix that, we, that desire for significance. And I guess what I want to suggest to you is that there's another reality and there's another place to gain our significance from. And uh, with that, I want to turn to the text of Psalm 139. And it's right in the middle of the Bible, Psalm 139, if you want to head there. And I just want to walk through some of the, some of the verses here. This is one of the most well-known psalms of the Bible. And, uh, but it's interesting because when I got into the text, uh, it opened itself up. The, the translations were not nearly as, as airtight as I thought they would be. And so I really became interested in this. So I'm going to, you know, you may have heard this psalm before. You may know it by certain um, texts and certain interpretations. I want to offer a couple alternatives today because this text is rich. So it starts off this way. Uh, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. It starts off with just this declaration of God's thorough knowledge of us. 
And I don't have anything drastically different to, to push into this conversation except this, that the language for the way that God knows us here is so interesting to me because the way the, the, that's the NIV version, the NLT is very similar. The knowledge that God has of us in that language, in that in translation is just a thorough knowledge. But the Hebrew is interesting. And you see this in different translations where God's knowledge is said to sift us. And if you've ever like held grain in your hand and just let it flow through, that's the imagery that God kind of has us in his hands, and as we flow through his hands, he watches it. And what I'm getting at here is the knowledge that is also portrayed in these first four verses is an active knowledge. It's a searching knowledge. It's not just a knowledge that says, bam, I know everything about Eric. But it's a knowledge that says, Eric, show me more. Eric, let me discover you. Let me search you out actively. God is not passive in this experience. He is engaged with me, searching me actively. The text goes on. You hem me in, verse five, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Now, the language here is really, really interesting because all, all of a sudden you get this idea, you hem me in and you hem me in behind. And, and the idea is that God is all around us. And some of the imagery, if you get into it, is even like a little constraining, like God's like right there, right? And he has his hand on us. Sometimes that can make us uncomfortable. Some of us don't like to be hemmed in behind, you know? It's kind of a, whoa, whoa, God, like, can I move in this? Um, some of the other language here is also used, though, to evoke the image of a potter. Anybody ever seen a potter at work? And they're sitting down and the wheel's turning and they kind of have the wheel between their legs. And the imagery is that God has us like a potter has clay and the wheel's turning and God's hand is on us as we turn and he's molding us and he's shaping us. And then right at the end of these two verses, it starts to take this little turn. Uh, this translation says that the knowledge of this, that God has us hemmed in behind and before, it's too lofty for me to attain. Another way to understand the Hebrew is that the writer says, I can't evade this knowledge. Hmm, well, that's interesting. Let's see what verse seven has for us. Set verse seven, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I, what's the text say? Where can I flee from your presence? Well, this is an interesting response to God's knowledge, isn't it? You see, the psalmist says, look, God, you know me, you're searching me, you have me hemmed in, and yet there's this thing inside me that wants to do what? Get out of there and get out of there fast. Anybody ever have that experience of like somebody takes a step towards you or, or someone professes their affection or their love or their, or their commitment to you and your re first response is, I'm out of here. 
Anybody ever know anybody that's done that? There's this human thing inside us that is slightly uncomfortable with this idea. How many of you people know exactly what I'm talking about? It's scary. And the psalmist acknowledges it. Where can I flee from your presence, God? Then he goes on. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, this is the image you to say, look, if I run from one end of creation to another, guess who's at the end? God. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Another way to understand that Hebrew is the writer says, the darkness and the light are one to you, God. We cannot get away from this knowledge, even though if we're being honest, a lot of us wish we could. Because being known thoroughly is humanly uncomfortable. Can I get an amen? No matter what we do, no matter where we know, or no matter where we go, God still knows us. And that searching, active knowledge keeps on coming and keeps on coming and keeps on coming. And the one hand we say, man, that's where I get my significance from. Because the God of the universe knows everything about me, as terrifying as that is. Because on the other hand, we say, that might make me significant, but it also freaks me out. And I want to hide from it. And I want to cover myself up from it. But I want to offer you guys another thought. You know, I said that I go up uh, to this monastery and and um, they're, the monks there, they, they, they pray. Their vocation is prayer. I don't know if you know that about a monk. They don't just go, and, they don't just go and to get away from humanity. A call to be a monastic is a call to prayer. So they pray about five hours a day. And uh, when you go up there to participate, you get to, you get to join in with that. And so I did. I, I, I got up one morning. And I was sitting there uh, praying and meditating, and it was the last day. And I had asked God, you know, to speak to me on, on, on a variety of different topics. And the last morning, this phrase, this word popped into my head. And this is the word that makes significance, um, it makes significance happen for me. And the word is this, Beloved. Beloved. And the word was given to me personally. You know, Eric, remember that you're the beloved. But then I also kind of heard, Eric, um, when you're talking about significance and the grind of significance, you need to tell your people they're the beloved. And when I think about that, 
And I know in my head I can get freaked out by the fact that God knows everything about me, but then God knows everything about me. And guess what? I'm still the beloved. How does that word strike you? You're the beloved of God. God calls his son Jesus his beloved son. And guess what? Every single person in this room, every single person you know, every single person you will ever lock eyes with is also God's beloved. I want to give you four, uh, four ways, uh, four parts of the journey to being the beloved. And I didn't make this stuff up. This is just sort of received wisdom. There are four aspects of being the beloved that you need to wrap your head around. The first is the fact that you are taken. And this is just the idea that God, before you were born, you were a thought in God's mind. I believe this. And that thought that he had said, they're the beloved. You are not an accident. You have been taken and selected by God to say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter. And because God is God and his love is infinite, you know, we tend to associate being chosen or taken with somebody else not being chosen or taken. But the field is level with God. So he says, you can be chosen and you can be chosen. There's no elementary school like, am I gonna be the last person picked? Being the beloved means you are taken and chosen. It also means you are blessed. You are blessed. So if you put yourself in the mind of God and God has this thought about you that, you are, that before you are born, you are taken, the first word that God pronounces over you is you're blessed too. Before your brokenness, you're blessed. Your essential nature that God wants you to recover is blessed. When he thinks of you, he thinks good thoughts. It's a word of essential blessing. But being the beloved also means that we are broken. And that our brokenness actually is one of the things that makes us uniquely who we are, you know? My brokenness is not your brokenness. And your brokenness is not your brokenness. We all have our own story with high points and low points. And being the beloved be is, just a, a, is essentially a journey to say, let me be honest with who I am. That yes, God knows my name. And yes, he has blessed me with a good, rich blessing but I have done things that aren't so great and I need healing and help. And then lastly, being the beloved means that we're given. We are taken, we are blessed, we are broken, but then we are given to the world and to each other. So we take our belovedness and we take that to the people who also need to hear this message of who God is and who they are. And we say, let me tell you, let me show you, let me help you. 
We don't become the beloved so that we can keep it to ourselves or that we can build our kingdom or watch our ego and our achievements go up and to the right. God calls us the beloved so that we can be given to each other. And so when we do things, our drive for significance is not wrapped up in in ticking off enough achievements to make sure our father loves us. Our drive for significance comes out of the fact that we are the beloved and he's gifted us to do things. And those things help other people. You're the beloved. I can't make this journey for you. Let me be really clear. I can tell you, I can hope and pray that some corner of your heart resonates with that phrase. But I also know that just like Psalm 139, there's some in here that you hear that and you wanna run. (laughs) You wanna flee on the wings of the dawn. But guess what? God's gonna be there too. And when you get there, he's going to be like, hey, glad you're here. Guess what? You're the beloved. And that's beautiful, beautiful news. I want to show you a video. A movie came out 20 years ago. Ironically called The Immortal Beloved. It's about Beethoven And there's a scene at the end of the movie that that actually shows the performance of the ninth. And so you're going to see just the the kind of the tail end of uh, of this ninth symphony and the response of the actor. And then I want to unpack why this resonates with me so deeply about the beloved. So go ahead and roll that. By the time the Ninth Symphony was written and performed, Beethoven was deaf. The greatest composer of Western orchestral music couldn't hear his own greatest work. And uh, people who were there documented that he just stood there and someone had to come out on stage and they turned him around because he couldn't hear anybody clapping. 
And um, so much comes together for me in that clip about significance and insignificance. And this kind of circles back into the, the thought that we want to matter. And so the first thing I would say is just, man, not only do we matter, but we're the beloved sons and daughters of God, right? But we also want to be given. We want to, we want to impact the world, So at the beginning of the message, Daryl played uh, the beginning of the ninth symphony. And if he would have kept it playing this whole time, it still would be playing. But the choir that you hear, you know, the, the theme that we all recognize, da, 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 right? If he would have left that playing, that choir still would not have come in. Because the choir for the ninth symphony sits for about 40 minutes, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And there are three movements of that symphony, and they wait, and they wait. And then eventually, it gets to the part where they're, they are needed. And then they stand, or maybe they're standing already, I don't know, I've never seen the ninth performed. And at the moment they are called upon to sing, guess what? They sing. And I dare say that unless you know the ninth very, very well, you don't recognize any other part of the ninth except that part that we just played from that video. Da, 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 da. So what I'm getting at is simply this. First of all, you may be waiting to give something. You may be sitting around going like, God, I feel like I have these gifts and, and is it time for me? When will it be time for me to, to step up? And your, your anxiety level is rising because you don't know if you matter. I look at God as like, he's the, he's, the, uh, he's the composer and the director of the symphony. And to some of us this morning, he might just be saying, it's not time yet. Just keep waiting. And he says, but when your time comes and you start to sing and you start to give that thing that you have been given to give to the world, the world will know. And yet, let's be clear, um, there's a humility about being in a choir. I couldn't name one of those people in the choir on May 7th, 1824, because they didn't write the symphony. Beethoven wrote the symphony. And so even if you're giving something right now, I know that I didn't write the symphony that I'm playing a part of. God has said, Eric, here's your part. Sing, speak, teach, lead. But I didn't write this symphony. It's not about me. It's about the conductor and the author of the symphony. I am just Playing my part, you know? And then the last part is Beethoven's part. Because he, he had so much significance in his life. 
He did so many great things, and yet a time came when the chapter shut on that. You see, we all can't uh, have our names at the top of every role for all of our lives. We have seasons, and for a season we do things, but those seasons don't last forever. And when those seasons ends, when those seasons end, I have to know where my significance comes from. Because otherwise, I'll just keep scraping and clawing to get my name back in the lights. But even the scriptures talk about David, who wrote this psalm, said he served God for his generation. And then he died. We're called upon to give. But we're called upon to be the beloved first. And so if I could ask you guys to just latch on to anything from anything that I've said today is to realize, yes, I have something to contribute. Yes, I have something to give. But the deeper truth of my reality is that I am the beloved of God, taken, blessed, broken, and given to the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. 